Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. Dave, you just got back from Halifax. I did. And I, the reason I know that is because you walked in like two minutes before we're supposed to press record. Before. You before, like yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. <laughs> I No, with much prep time ahead of time, you know, and I uh, I squeezed in. But no, I, you know what? Awesome trip. Um, may I share? Of course. It was, uh, I was voluntold uh, to be a chaperone for my grade five son, his, his, a bunch of kids from his school, 20, 10 year olds drove down to Halifax on a Tuesday and attended this We Day event on Wednesday. And, uh, I didn't know exactly what I was participating in. Um, but I was, when I saw his excitement of having me, you know, come with him and this legitimate excitement, I thought, okay, well, I got to go. So I jump into a bus. I've got all these 10-year-olds 10 10 with some other chaperones, thankfully. Um, uh, I will say it was organized chaos. We drive four hours in a bus. You know, we're, we overnight in a hotel. I've got these uh, four, four roommates all of a sudden. I love having room to myself, by the way, you know what I mean, <laughs> when I'm in a hotel. So, so any, but I, the, what I'm going to share with you, though, is that the event was unbelievable. Well, it just, you show up at 9 a.m., and there, we walk in, and there's like eight thousand kids. And this is all about you know leading and being uh, leading locally and globally. Um, you know, it was really cool to see how passionately spoke about uh, Canada, and they had this surprise guest, a couple guests that I wasn't expecting, but one being Gord Downey. Yeah, I saw I saw the pictures. Dave, is, wow. So listen, Dave, you know how we're always looking for good transitions into our guests. Yes. You, oh, and I'm you so, just I, gave me a great well, one. Well, and I was going to do, because you're the master segues, well, as we well, all Well, here's know. the thing. Jennifer Starr from uh, the We Day uh, organization mm-hmm. is actually um, featured in our film, The Millennial Dream, which uh, I don't know if you connected those two things together. I did not. So we featured We Day in our film. You'll have to take a look uh, at that, and the, I got to rewatch the, it because yes, because yeah, I've watched yeah. it. I didn't even make the You'll connection. You'll have to watch it again. Now the transition to that is uh, we have my friend George from Council Fire on the line right now, and George and I have connected both through the B Corp world, but also for our love of film and documentaries. And nice. George is instrumental in helping us bring the Millennial Dream into the U.S. into some really key screenings. So without further ado, uh, welcome George to the podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you. Very uh, happy to be with you, gentlemen. And uh, more than happy to spread the millennial dream. It's a message that uh, was critical before the U.S. election and is even more critical after, but I'm sure we'll probably have conversations. Oh, he, he, you're going to bring up U.S. politics. Oh, my well, goodness. Well, how can one you of Canadians, yeah, The how passion can we all have as Canadians. <laughs> is, we're dominated by U.S. politics in terms of our national you know, yeah, news yeah. coverage and everything. How do we pronounce your last name, George? Chamel. Chamel. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I just had to call George uh, GC. GC. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a picture. There's a picture, George. We haven't met in person. We will. We said at some point. But I was, I was, I was admiring 
um, that you and I have very similar haircuts, and I just wanted to say, you know, well done, well done. <laughs> Getting right to the meat of the meat of it here. Uh, so, George, George, you you've got a very interesting story. I know uh, a lot about Council Fire um, and the amazing work you're doing, and uh, certainly in the environmental space as well. But for Dave and our listeners' uh, uh, benefit, how about you give us a, a rundown of what Council Fire is all about? Sure, sure thing. Um, so we're a small sustainability consultancy. We've been in business, believe it or not, uh, approaching 17 years. Uh, so we were ahead of the game, shall we say, uh, on uh, the sustainability front. I often say when uh, I first talked about sustainability consulting 17 years ago, there was an echo in the room. And now I can't hear myself above the din when we talk about sustainability. Um, but we work with actually all over the world, uh, which is, um, can be a little hair raising for bald guys like me, um, traveling around the world, trying to service clients, um, and with our small band of warriors, but, um, we work for nonprofit organizations, government sector, uh, as well as the private sector. And of course, uh, Greg, you and I. Uh, share a passion for B Corps, which I imagine we'll discuss as well. Um, but we're really operating at sort of the intersection of environmental, economic, and social issues. Uh, we try and assist our our clients in considering their operations in that context. So um, almost regardless of what it is that they do or the challenge that they're facing, we try and bring to their thinking uh, a series of solutions that consider environmental, economic, and social components um, to what it is that they're involved in. And then uh, a principal uh, element of virtually everything that we do is collaboration. So uh, if it's a company, we have them working with their constituents in a much more tangible, hands-on, mutually beneficial way. Uh, if it's, you know, the U S government or, uh, a multinational NGO, um, rather than just assisting them with, you know, their program design or an advocacy agenda, we try and help them understand that whatever it is they're trying to do, uh, they can do much more successfully by engaging, uh, others who are impacted by their work. Um, and while for many, that's a scary step to take, uh, open up their thoughts and plans and uh, put their final objectives at risk, as it were. Um, time and again, we've been able to demonstrate that through those collaborations, not only uh, do they achieve their objectives, but they do it more efficiently, more effectively. Um, we sort of operate by the motto, together, we're smarter than any one of us alone. Um, and that's, uh, over 17 years been demonstrated time and again. Uh, we can talk about some of those specific projects. If you think that would be of interest. Um, but suffice to say, we also do some economic analysis of, uh, the projects that we're involved in. Um, and we've been able to demonstrate very substantial, if not massive, uh, economic impacts resulting uh, from this sort of an approach. So it's an exciting thing um, to be a part of. Uh, it gives me the benefit of uh, working across sectors and in a variety of contexts and feeling like we're 
able to do our small part to have a big impact on the world. That's why well, I've got a, I'm curious about a couple things. Um, in, you know, when you say economic, you know, impact, everyone's, that gets everyone's ears, you know, perked, I would say. If we step back a little bit, I noticed that you're trained as a lawyer and a sustainability specialist. And I'm just, that's, that's an, like, that's an interesting mixture. I don't, I would think that's pretty unique. And I'm just wondering, you know, when you think of the cross section of the, both those specialties, if you will, um, how does that show up, you know, with your clients? And I guess what's the benefit of, of having the, you know, the two backgrounds? Um, it's a great question. So we, um, we don't practice law, so we don't, uh, have a, uh, lawyer client relationship and all of the, um, consequences that come from that, uh, in the context of our engagements uh, with our clients at council fire. Um, so I'm not a practicing lawyer in that context. Um, but I would suggest that I, and there are other lawyers on our team as well, uh, use our training um, our legal training probably on a daily basis. You know, the, the, the at least in the U.S., the the approach for uh, training lawyers is you know to sort of put the students through hell <laughs> um, for three years, uh, keep them uh, tucked away in stacks and stacks of books. Uh, at least that's the way it was 30 years ago. I'm sure now it's you know hours and hours and hours on the computer. Um, but really, it's it's a matter of learning two things: uh, how to break down um, challenges into their component parts, and then two to know where to go to look for answers. Um, and so, those two skills are applicable in a big, big way uh, in the sustainability context. So, whereas I might not be assessing a statute or a regulation on a daily basis like I did early in my career. Um, we take the same approach in addressing client challenges. Um, and instead of leveraging, although, you know, periodically, uh, there are legal considerations, um, to some of the work that we do, but instead of referencing statutes, uh, to try and understand interpretations and opportunities, um, we're looking at, uh, through that lens, as I described before, of, you know, what are the environmental consequences of this objective? Uh, what are the opportunities for social impact associated with what you're doing? And it's uh, it's really been a fascinating journey. I'll, I often use one example as as um, demonstrative of just how different the results can be when you think this way. Um, we've worked for many years for um, a large uh, port here in the U.S., the Port of Baltimore, which is I can't remember the exact statistics, but, you know, a top 10 port in terms of volume of cargo uh, in North America. Um, and amongst their many challenges, uh, they're located uh, in the city of Baltimore, uh, which is up the Chesapeake Bay. So unlike most ports, they have 128 miles of dredged channel uh, that they need to maintain to allow those big post Panamax and post Suez uh, size ships uh, that are uh, transiting our world's oceans and, and bringing all the stuff that um, everybody relies on for their daily lives. Uh, you know, I think it's something 85 or 90% of the world's goods travel by ship. Um, so the Port of Baltimore has this challenge of keeping 
128 miles of channel open so that those ships can transit safely. Um, we were retained many, many years ago uh, to assist the Port of Baltimore in doing that. And, you know, initially they viewed it as an environmental problem, right? What do we do? How do we keep those channels open without causing uh, substantial environmental damage? What do we do with the material that we pull out of those channels, you know, that sloughs in every year from bad land use practices? Um, and, you know, how do we uh, do that in a place where the Chesapeake Bay, which is the nation's largest estuary and is considered a national treasure, you know, how do we do that without being viewed as an environmental enemy? Um, and so over a number of years, um, we've worked with the Port of Baltimore to engage their constituents, as I described before, and to think much more innovatively and holistically about their operations. So it's not simply how do we keep those channels open, but how do we maintain a safe marine highway for those ships to transit, but also benefit the Chesapeake Bay. And a very tangible example of how we've successfully done that is one location um, near the city of Baltimore, near the port proper, uh, where they needed to place dredge material uh, from the channels. Um, and we were able to assist them in doing a massive environmental cleanup at a site that had been abused for decades, um, reconnect destitute communities to the waterfront, uh, build an environmental ed center that now has tens of thousands of students going through there uh, each year to learn about environmental education um, and to learn about uh, career opportunities job training, uh, local employment, um, incredible, incredible uh, resource now. Uh, there's, um, you know, in essence, a waterside park in addition to this near net zero environmental ed center. So now you've got, when you were simply looking to place dredge material somewhere in a way that wasn't damaging, and now you've got a placement spot for your dredge material, which will become a future port facility, um, an environmental education center, a massive environmental cleanup, hope and education and opportunity for communities that suffer from 50% unemployment and drugs and prostitution and things of that nature. Um, and uh, all of that plus uh, our economic analysis uh, revealed that by engaging the communities and the stakeholders who care about the Bay, the state of Maryland saved at least $125 million um, in executing that project because rather than fighting the environmental groups and fighting the local communities as they had done over the last 40 or 50 years in these projects, uh, they collaborated and joined forces and the, the, the project was built dramatically more quickly, six, seven years. We haven't even been able to place a value on the on the education and the jobs yet. That's just simply in terms of the direct business impact. So it's a great example, great long-winded example of how it is uh, that organizations can, by taking a sustainability approach to their operations, can do dramatically great things. Who would have ever thought that the placement of dredge material would lead to the education of tens of thousands of students uh, from communities in need. Uh, and then just to finish off that story, that site was subsequently designated as uh, the United States' first urban wildlife refuge uh, as part of the uh, official wildlife refuge system. 
Um, so we've connected, we're now connecting thousands of urban youth in a way that, you know, they can't get to, they can't get, they can't necessarily get to those far off national wildlife refuges that are, you know, a hundred miles from home and might just as well be halfway across the world. Um, now they've got it in their backyard. Just, so just to jump in hopefully there that, really quick, like, that's a great example. No, what I was just going to ask is, um, is, you know, like when you're, you're citing all these examples, and, you know, the point, I guess, is the collaboration really supported it versus looking at it as being adversarial. Um, did, you, did, you, did you have any sense of some of these outcomes when you went into it initially and engaged? Um, on that one in particular, I mean, we had some ideas. There was the opportunity to reconnect these communities to the waterfront. They had been literally physically cut off from the, um, from the bay by virtue of, uh, railroad, um, system and industrial development. And so we knew that if we were able to, uh, make a part of that site, um, an environmental education center and a park, uh, that we'd be able to reconnect them. But, you know, all of the other stuff, the opportunity to, um, build the environmental education center to, um, do all the job training and local hiring um, and all the other wonderful things that have come from that and the, the partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, those all came as a result of working closely with the community members and, and other advocates, environmental advocates and what have you. So um, I think, you know, that's part of the excitement, right, is we've got some ideas. You know, we've been at this for a long time. Um, we've seen, uh, how some of these things go and we certainly have some content expertise. Um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg for what's possible when you bring people together, work collaboratively like this and, and think from a perspective of how can we do things together to, that are mutually beneficial as opposed to, um, just serving the interests of one group or another. So my question, George, is um, where did this come from, from the Port of Baltimore? Was this like a CEO down? Was it the board? Was it like who who was driving the change from the inside? Because it doesn't sound like a typical organization to care so much. Like I know what you just said is is true about the Chesapeake Bay being a national treasure. So maybe it was a social license discussion. But um, where internally did that come from? So we found in many, many cases and, you know, at times this is distressing at other times. Uh, it's, uh, find solace in it, but we work for visionaries. Um, that needs to change. Uh, we need to work for, you know, everybody across the board. And as you know, um, Greg, um, that sustainable business movement has, has to take greater hold, um, so that it becomes business as usual. Um, uh, as opposed to something new and innovative. Um, but the reality is in our first 16, 17 years of existence, we principally work for visionaries. There's someone in the client organization that has a sense of a way to do things uh, better. Um, and with respect to the Port of Baltimore, we had the good fortune of working with a gentleman. And remember, this is state government, right? So it's, it's not known for its agility and it's progressive thinking per se. Um, but we had the benefit of working with someone who ran the water side of the port. He was responsible for, um, uh, maintaining, um, 
and expanding the infrastructure on the water side. So you can think of a port as being split into the land side infrastructure and the water side infrastructure. So this gentleman was responsible for maintaining what we often refer to as the marine highway system uh, in and around the port of Baltimore. And he knew after 20 years of battle scars and, and um, difficult experiences that uh, it didn't make any sense um, to fight uh, with folks when it came to doing his job. Um, and he had a sense that there was a better way of doing things. So the timing was fortuitous. In fact, I had been the lawyer for an environmental organization in the region who had actually gone to battle with the port over their uh, waterside uh, how do you, activity. So I had some knowledge and he had some knowledge and we came together. George, how do you, like, so that's, I mean, being collaborative is tough. Right. I mean, it, and people talk, it's a word that you, it, we throw around loosely, or at least maybe I do. Um, the reality is it takes a high degree of cooperation and a high level of trust. And, um, and you have to be patient, right? It takes time. And, you know, as Absolutely. you described this, and like, I mean, the power in all this, as I'm listening to it, is, is the collaborative experience, right? And, and then there was all this, you know, some intended outcomes and then some un- like very positive unintended outcomes. Um, as a result, and you talked about earlier, you said, you know, everything we do is collaborative, right? And then you're describing, you know, is it a timing thing? Is there a way to support people, you know, coming together and, and, and not being focused on one single interest group? You know, do you, is there a process around that? Is it intuitive to you? Like, how do you guys go about that? So there is a process. Um, but, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is, uh, it's a commitment it's a commitment of time and resources. Um, credibility does not flow from words. You can have the best marketing firm on your, your PR firm on your side uh, with the best messaging uh, in the world, but you cannot gain trust and credibility uh, through anything but action. Um, and action takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to have that process. You have to have that opportunity. And that's, you know, another reason why we're very often working with visionaries, people who can see a better alternative and are willing to make a commitment to it, uh, because it does take time. Um, in that instance at the port of Baltimore, we've been working there for 12 years now. Um, and it took a good two years before people really believed that there was a a government agency, one that historically had been problematic and difficult to work with, um, that was willing to truly consider their interests and work collaboratively and engage in a long-term relationship. Um, so there's a, there's, as you might imagine, there's a big collaborative infrastructure that supports that. We have a Geez, I don't know, probably 12 committees that meet on a regular basis to consider various issues, uh, both geographically based and issue based. Um, and it requires, you know, the commitment of citizen the citizenry um, to put in volunteer time and and for the government workers to do the same. Uh, the 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 recognition comes if you can if you can get people in the room long enough. And frequently enough, the recognition comes that a couple of things, right? One, we're all in this together. We're all actually pulling in the same direction at the broad scale. Um, Two, there is 
opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise think of, right? Because the vast majority of organizations out there are doing it in the winner-loser way, right? It's, can I get this over on you? Right. Um, and can I win? And mm-hmm. what we tell our clients all the time is, you know, if you screw someone over and you win, you're going to spend the rest of your days looking back out over your shoulder mm-hmm. to see if they're coming from for you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you guys figure out a way to work, walk arm in arm down that path, um, you have the strength and support and the partnership. And there will be times when you need them and they need you. It's basic, uh, you know, it's basic human relationship stuff uh, to be sure, but it has to be applied across all of our organizations and all of our operations um, in order to do these collaborative things. And then as we were talking about before, there's this incredible epiphany of opportunity and ways that we can work together that we would have never thought of before. And the other reality is people are reasonable, right? Reasonable people reach reasonable conclusion conclusions. We tell our clients all the time, whatever you've designed inside your own four walls, if you work collaboratively with your constituents, not only will 95% of it be the same, but the other 5% will be dramatically better because of their input. Um, and oh, by the way, it'll happen, right? They'll be your ally. They'll be your, uh, they'll work with you to ensure that it happens in a timely and effective way. And so it's that sort of thinking, that sort of approach, um, that needs to become the dominant model. And we do that sort of work all over the world. Uh, I spend lots of time in Europe, um, working on commercial fisheries, for instance, working with commercial fishermen and NGOs that are concerned about oceans conservation and regulators to figure out, is there a way that we can feed our population, maintain our cultural heritage? Many of, you know, many of the Northern, especially, well, I mean, throughout Europe, but, um, you know, places like Sweden and Spain, where their entire coastline, their communities are built around fishing. Um, and those are at risk. And is there a way to maintain the health of the oceans, maintain the health of the fish stocks, um, gain better and uh, more sustainable economic return for those communities and allow there to be an ongoing industry? You know, many times sons and daughters aren't, aren't interested and or their parents don't want them to go into fishing like mom or dad. Um, because they, they don't see a future in it. Um, so we work with in, in that same exact context. In that scenario, we're working on behalf of a multinational environmental NGO whose principal interest is you know the health of the oceans. But they've recognized that working collaboratively with all the users is the only way that we'll achieve sustainability. Um, so the, the model can be applied in a whole variety of contexts. George? I can't believe it. Yes. We're at the end of our point of calling, man. <laughs> like I, I, I even wanted to go into Sustainafest and everything. So um, this is what we have to do because we've, we've got Joyce Sue coming up uh, within the next two minutes for our next guest from B-Lab, somebody that we both know. Um, I believe this r- requires a follow-up uh, call in the near future because there's so many more things <laughs> I want to unpack with you. Like, and the other the other one, yeah. thing I didn't get to was um, how is uh, Millennial Dream, you know, enter the United States and, you know, how does it, well, what's the strategy? Here, I wanted to hear yeah. all about that, but we'll have to here's wait. Here's what I'm thing. thinking. 
why don't George? Why don't you give us and our listeners the best way to to be in touch with you? Number one. Also, we haven't talked about Sustainafest, but like, if there's any links that you can give our listeners to learn more about you, but ways to stay in touch so we can talk more about Millennial Dream and other projects like that. Uh, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with what you're up to, George? Absolutely, and I look forward to a follow up because I, you know, I rambled on there. Sorry for that, guys. <laughs> we did, uh, we did so, not want to interrupt you, man. It was very engaging information. So yeah, um, yeah. You guys edit any of this stuff? We can you know cut it down to half. No but edits, anyway, baby. Um, no edits. <laughs> no, and there was Council, a nice flow Council, too. Nice flow. <laughs> Council Fire. Uh, lots of details about our services and what we do and our our perspective on the world, which aligns with uh, Greg Hemmings very much. Uh, <laughs> Is councilfire.org, C-O-U-N-C-I-L-F-I-R-E.org. Um, and then our affiliated uh, sustainability education and action nonprofit is called Sustainafest, and the website is sustainafest.org. Spelled as it sounds, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-A-F-E-S-T dot O-R-G. You rock, George. Thanks a lot, man. I look forward to follow-up phone calls, and uh, our listeners are looking forward to hearing a more unpacked version on round two whenever we can get down to that, brother. George, thank you so much, All man, right. for everything you do. Keep on rocking it. We'll chat with you soon. Thanks, George. All right. Thanks. Great to talk to you guys. Okay. Bye-bye, man. See ya. Well, George uh, has a lot to say and uh, such global uh, interests and uh, experiences. We need to go. There's no time for... for uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue discussing this uh this, this interview was dominated by George and me. And yeah. We didn't get any of Greg Hemmings. That's, that's well, not that's, Greg Hemmings. That's not okay. normal. Come on. Okay, Dave. I'll see you next week, man. See you later. <laughs> Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com. And on Twitter at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit HemmingsHouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and remember, keep that pot boiling. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.